Welcome to Starboard Vineyard Tours. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. Uh, and this is a special episode because we're recording in the same place. I think that's like one out of every six episodes or so, just given our... Uh... Okay, one out of every six can be a special episode. No, it's special. I, I think it's special. I consider it special, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying that... This is not unusual, even if it is special. It's about as special as the weekend is. You know, compared yeah, to the other yeah, days of the week. Yeah, no, that's a pretty fair comparison. Um, anyway. <laughs> Sorry for my pre-dialectical approach this information. <laughs> I think pre-critical is the preferred term. Um, he uses both. Yeah, but because dialectical is not the only type of critical thought, right? Uh, I don't think he'd agree. Like, he, he explicitly lists multiple types of no, critical no, no. Yes, thought, not they're... all of which are dialectical. I don't I don't know that any of them are non-dialectical. Not all of them mm. are Marxist. Most of them okay. are not Marxist, but all of them are dialectical in the sense of being self-reflexively critical. Okay, no, 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 you're right. They are all dialectical. Um, As you can tell, we're really going to get into it with this one. Yeah, so this we're, today we are talking about Critical Theory and Science Fiction by Carl Friedman. Yep, um, it was published... Uh, 2000. 2000. Yeah, so this is like, uh, I think in a lot of ways you can say this is one of the epical, uh, like, 90s uh, science fiction studies works. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, coming out of that period. Uh, it's definitely, like, the book that is most trying to put critical theory and science fiction in conversation with each other. Like, in, in the most just, like, this is what I'm doing with the book, you know? Yeah, yeah, but... Because Carl Friedman will disagree with almost anything you say about Carl Friedman's work based on this book, uh, he would disagree because he's arguing that it's not about putting them in conversation. I think he specifically denigrates that phrase. Okay. Instead, the argument is more particularly, and we'll have to be so particular about this because he is very particular, uh -huh. that science fiction expresses critical theory and is the preferred genre of critical theory in the same way that to Lukash, the major... Um, theorist of uh, literature of the early 20th century, um, the historical novel was the preferred genre of Marxist analysis. Yes, that, that is like basically his, his thesis. Um, in fact, I, I can read where he basically says that. Um, yep. He literally says, to prefigure here the core sentences of the entire book, which like, thank you so much, man, for saying that. <laughs> so useful. I maintain that science fiction, like critical theory, insists upon historical mutability, material reducibility, and utopian possibility. So, okay, yes, he is not just putting them in conversation with each other as though they kind of exist independently and could just kind of be applied one to yeah, one. Yeah, he's, like, he's very insistent that, for example, his case studies or his excursuses, uh -huh. uh, as he puts it in the, in the third chapter, are not as he considers to be sort of puerile, taking your theory and then applying it to a series of works to show that your theory does things, but something else and more complicated. He's very willing to just say that a vast quantity of scholarship is beneath him. Yeah, yeah. Pre-critical is usually the word he uses for that. Or um, pre-dialectical. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> um, but we're coming off pretty harsh, actually, to start in on this, which is, I think, a little bit unfair. Because I do no, think no. this is... Uh, yeah, I, or rather, yes, I agree with you. It's a bit unfair, because actually I really enjoyed this book and thought it was very insightful. <laughs> yeah, I, I have complicated feelings about it, but it is definitely 
epical to certain elements of science fiction studies. It's a great example of someone working in the like Suvinian tradition. He like foundationally accepts Suvin's definition of science fiction as the literature of cognitive estrangement. He offers a very minor alteration of it, which is, I think, the thing he's actually most famous for. It's the reason I was told to read this uh, at one point, and mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea of the cognition effect, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but he's very much setting out to fulfill the Suvinian program, to follow Suvin's idea that what is best in science fiction is a liberatory potential, a critical, even satirical eye on the world, and an applicability to the very questions that critical theory is applicable to. That is to say, uh, the analysis and critique of society as a whole, you know, what Mark listed, those three elements um, being... I, I, oh, sorry? I, yeah, I don't think I actually listed the three elements, and I'm trying to find where he does that, because it's... Well, like, historical mutability... You oh, oh yeah, no, That's I did. That's what I meant, yeah. But yeah. there's also, um, there's somewhere where he, I, I guess, um, he lists, oh, oh, it's, it's, it's like Marx, Freud, and the, and the Frankfurt School, or his big sort of Yeah, examples of critical theory that he's, yeah, he's giving us his sort of example of bodies of work that are in this critical tradition, which he traces back to Kant, specifically, um, and... We're going to get into a bunch of, like, philosophy and theory in this one, because that is the basis of this book. It's a very theory-dense uh, text. As, like, you know, it's not as though Darko Suvin isn't dense and theoretical and interested in these things, but the elusiveness, as in, like, the illusions made by Friedman, the amount to which he is buttressing his argument by pointing to previous thinkers and saying... I am in alignment with these, these are similar to what I am doing, is really constant and dense. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a book that makes me feel like, uh, I need to go read Derrida. Uh. <laughs> That's your problem, not mine. <laughs> I know. I'm fully aware. <sighs> I, I respond to anyone telling me to read Derrida with quietly nodding and not doing it. Well... At this point in time, I'll probably have to read more Derrida at some point, but... Bleh. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I prefer Blonde Show. Uh, but yeah, um, we maybe should talk a little bit about what he means by critical theory. Yes. So, um, I mean, I, I already, in the core sentences of the book, he describes things that are true about critical theory, but that are yeah. also true about science fiction. So that's not super useful as definition of the I mean, theory itself. to some extent, his argument is that these two things, one of them is the artistic expression of it, and one of them is the, like, philosophical expression of it, but the same fundamental spirit animates both. And this is where it gets, I think, both really interesting and also what is uh, less commonly absorbed from this than uh, the cognition effect, which, can we just briefly cover that? Because it yeah, is, like, sure. this let's, thing. Let's so, talk about the cognition effect. Yeah, so... Uh, as per our episode on Suv episodes on Suvin, uh, the cog uh, the um, definition Suvin gives of science fiction is the literature of cognitive estrangement, and he, he has there's more information there, but cognitive estrangement means uh, it is estranged from the world as it exists. We are not in the zero or given world, but in a different world that the that is invented, and that world is cognitively valid. That is to say, it follows certain principles of rationality and analysis, generally speaking, materialism, historicism, uh, you know, 
criticality, as Friedman would define it, um, and requires a certain kind of thinking to make sense of. This is contrasted to fantasy, which is pure estrangement without cognition. Well, you know, according to this theory and to this, you know, 70s and later 90s version of Suvinian thinking. Um, and so cognition is this very much... Um, like preferred or privileged privileged category exactly thank you um that is the word i was looking for uh where the point of the genre is to some extent to encourage and create cognition which is a thing that goes on in a person's mind that is special and important and successfully understands the world it is for friedman explicitly dialectical which means to say in the his in the tradition of kant hegel marx etc um and that there are certain qualities of thought that make something cognitive. Now, Suvin simply believes that cognition is the necessary requirement, and he often has to jump through a little bit of hoops because, for example, if something is no longer considered to be scientifically true and materially evidenced, it is non-cognitive. So, for example, um, geocentrism is inherently non-cognitive in the present day, according to Suvin. This gives you some trouble when, say, science fiction was written before certain scientific discoveries or refinements that mean that it is now considered out of date. Does that make it no longer science fiction? Suvin says, well, you, you judge by the prevailing standards of the time. If someone was up to date on scientific knowledge as far as they could, they could reasonably know, then it's cognitive. But Friedman challenges this, basically, by saying, well... It's a genre. It's aesthetic. This is art. Therefore, cognition cannot be judged by that kind of external standard. It's whether the text itself takes the um, takes a sort of cognitive perspective on its subjects, which is to say it creates the effect of cognition in the reader rather than being in, some, in an absolute sense cognitive. He then immediately goes on to say that the best way to create the cognition effect is to evoke real cognition, and so it's really only edge cases where the cognition effect and cognition need to be distinguished. And this is actually a very small part of the book, and is absolutely the part that is most widely cited and, like, used. It's the most yeah. mobile piece of the theory, which... Honestly, I feel a little bad for Friedman in that respect, because it's not the most interesting part of his theory. No, it's really not. I mean, it's it's useful for sure. It's like an important kind of development on Suvin. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a better solution to this problem than the one that's actually in Metamorphoses. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's not that... I mean, it's frankly just not that theoretical of a, <laughs> yeah. of a statement. <laughs> no, it's... It's a small recognition relative, like, it only occurs in, like, the first chapter and a bit. The, like, setting the ground in the book, and then a little bit in the developing the theory part. Not, the cognition, the term cognition effect, I don't think appears a single time in the case studies. It does not. Yeah, um, it's, it's just not actually a very major part of critical theory in science fiction, but it is the takeaway that many other writers uh, took away. Uh-huh. And I think that's interesting. And I, th I think it's a good example of how the way your theory or your ideas are picked up and used is not necessarily what you are most interested in or most concerned about in your own work. Yeah, no, that's true. Something I genuinely don't have to worry about for, like, years, even if everything in my life goes as planned. So, you know. 
<laughs> like, on some level, it's sort of like, on the one hand, the thing everyone knows from your work is a relatively minor bit that doesn't relate to your main point particularly directly. On the other hand, everyone does know this one thing you said and quotes it, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling too bad for Carl Friedman in this respect. No, no. Um, so, uh, to talk about critical theory a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so it is... Like, it's, it's something that he defines in a, in a theoretical way. Like, yes. he describes the sort of qualities of the type of thought that critical theory is. But it's also yes. definitely a historical concept yeah Yeah, he has a particular history of the development of of uh you might say criticism of critical theory that again starts with kant um and with a particular uh set of insights in kant and you know kant is obviously a major figure in the history of western philosophy um and has a huge influence on the academy and philosophy now uh when we talk about the enlightenment kant's the guy who proposed the term if i remember correctly and has a huge influence on things going forward, such that post-Kantian thinkers are usually at least a little bit responding to Kant. Right. Um, and so that's the... And, and then, you know, as I said, like, his sort of big landmarks are Marx, Freud, and the Frankfurt School, and so then people who are writers who are Marxist or Marxian and, like, Freudian and post-structuralist yeah post-structuralist is how he puts it mostly yeah i think he says that like the the frankfurt school sort of uh gestures towards post-structuralism and then that's what the school becomes afterward yeah you know it's the frankfurt school is hard to like uh it's hard to say what exactly they're doing collectively because they're you know writing during a period of massive social disruption and people move around and a bunch of them die and things like that happen and so you it's there's a, a there is a school that people can point to, but its influences are much more diffuse and less direct than like, and then there's the Marxists. Yes, yes. Um, At least that's my impression. No, I think that's true. Um, yeah. So those are the kind of like uh, specific like origin points or sources. Um, but then uh, in a in a, a sort of theoretical definitional sense. Um, he let's see. Um, he, he this this one he's also got three things. It's um, dialectical, historical, and um, what? How would you call? <clears throat> Sorry, there's there's. I, yeah, I know no, there's... The, the problem here is that we're talking about a massive body of philosophy that he is presenting as a massive body of philosophy like we're you're constantly encountering different thinkers you know uh marx freud but also adorno uh altusser uh benjamin obviously from the frankfurt school there's this whole pile of thinkers that he is referencing um that he sees as part of this tradition because it is an entire tradition and boiling it down is a large part of the first chapter of the novel i says the novel of the book uh you like, know, one does have to ask, um, if if critical theory and science fiction no, are kind of the same thing, no. why hasn't he written this as a science fiction novel? No, that's unfair. That's I know. Unkind. No, that's... No, a, no. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. Very briefly, just because we're a little bit floundering, I think it might be useful to briefly discuss the structure of the book. 
uh, because I think that'll help as well. Because the yes. entire first chapter is called Definitions, and it's just setting up, here's... Uh, Here's the particular terms I'm using. This is where cognition effect gets proposed, if I remember correctly. Here's where, you know, uh, Lukash and Bakunin, her theories, theorists of the novel, get referenced, and, you know, his di- the differences between these things. And we're not going to go through everything that gets defined in this jo- uh, chapter, because there's just a ton of it. Yes. Um, and then the second chapter, Articulations, makes his point-by-point argument that science fiction as the literature of cognitive estrangement is inherently wedded to or of the same nature as critical theory. And this also involves a lot more defining critical theory and its particular schools, its particular uh, subdivisions that he is interested in. And then chapter three, Excursuses, goes through five uh, science fiction novels more or less from the 60s through 80s, I think, like maybe a little bit before and a little bit, nothing, actually nothing really into the 80s, as his examples of exemplary uh, critical science fiction, and therefore the most science fictional science fiction, according to his uh, lights, um, which are, do you have the list of those? I can also uh, Oh, uh, sorry, can you be a little more? The list of the five works. Oh, oh, of the works that he reads. Yes. Um, Let's see, it's, uh, I'm not going to go in the order that he talks about them, but it's The Man in the High Castle, The Dispossessed. That's um, Dick and Le Guin. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand. Delaney. By Delaney. Um, uh, the Two of Them by Russ. Yeah, yeah. And then, what am I missing? Solaris by Solaris by Lem. There we go. Yeah, so the, the thing is that almost all of these are really, like, looking back, they're very well known, they're very, uh, like... Um, some of them are considered like the masterwork or like the, the best known work by an incredibly well-known author, uh, stars in my pocket, like grains of sand by Delaney, Solaris by Lem and the dispossessed by Le Guin are, I think like really obviously held up as like, if not the most well-known and popular than the most like theoretically interesting of the works by these authors. Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. true. And I think you could make an argument for the man in the high castle playing that role also. It's except that it's really hard to narrow one down like that cuz he's he, weird. He does basically say that in a really as he would put it eulogistic way, but like he does pretty much say Dick doesn't have a single masterwork. Instead, all of his works are first rate. Oh yeah, we should be clear. Friedman's favorite author is Philip K. Dick. He makes no bones about this whatsoever. He's just like, this is the best science fiction author ever. He's the most interesting. There's really interesting questions about why Dick in particular. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny that, like... I would... Dick was a paranoid anti-communist. Yeah, I was about to say. Like, <laughs> politically, they're not that simpatico. <laughs> no, and like... I mean, fundamentally, I think it's, uh, you know, to give Friedman credit, I think he's fully aware of that, but he thinks that the particular things Dick's uh, novels illuminate and the way in which Dick illuminates things is critical and speaks to concerns he's interested in. And I think most of all, it's that Dick is so intensely science fictional while also having works that don't tend towards spaceships. Like, very straightforwardly, he expressly says in the excursuses that of the works he's looking at, critical masterpieces of science fiction as they are, four of them have space travel, only Man in the High Castle doesn't. And I think for him that's very important because he really wants to distinguish science fictionality 
as a genre quality, a, a an element within a work which can be, you know, maximized, can be at its most in the most science fictional works, from any of the genre markers of science fiction, any novum, any particular uh, style of story or narrative, even any style of writing, instead it's the quality of cognition and criticality that makes the thing science fictional if it's applied in certain ways. I think it might also be worth, because I think at this point we haven't yet fully kind of <laughs> described what he means by critical, mm, which is right. hard to do, but I think uh, like the most kind of core part to it is that it is... Uh, thought that like interrogates itself yes it's it's self-reflexive it's self-critical and also it is critical of the conditions under which it can be uh, produced as thought and therefore is critical of the totality of society he emphasized this a number of times dialectical thought in his tradition of dialectical thought is total it takes as its object of consideration the entirety of the social world which produces that dialectical thought and therefore criticizes itself this is obviously extremely hegelian where the where you know hegel's response to kant as i understand it you know don't make don't, never let it be said that i claim to fully understand hegel in a lucid fashion um yeah but <laughs> i i have described my experience with um uh, phenomenology phenom of pure spirit. Uh, phenomenology of the spirit, as that I passed my eyes over the page rather than reading it. <laughs> I never even finished all of it. I read excerpts, but um. Oh no, no I also didn't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> even it's... pass my eyes over the whole thing. <sighs> yeah, Hegel being for uh, Hegel being a nineteenth, early nineteenth century philosopher who was who's infamous for. Uh, both being incredibly intricate and developed in his ideas of, like, systems, which uh, self-reference, and uh, the introduction of the concept of dialectics, which is, uh, you know, the short version, the, the infamous uh, Hegelian Aufhebung is, or sublation, which, even though sublation is theoretically the English word, neither of those are English words, um, which is, you have, in the very simplified form, you have the thing, and a the, you know, the thesis, its opposite, or like the response to it, the antithesis emerges, and then both are dissolved into the synthesis, which includes or incorporates elements of either. Um, and then this then becomes the new thesis to a new antithesis and creates a new synthesis, and so the universe proceeds by a constant sublating motion. I'm doing little hand gestures that nobody can see. Yeah, you're doing, sp you have a dialectics hand gesture. Yes, I have my alphabung hand gesture. And Mark is now doing it at me <laughs> to mock me. No, just to... <laughs> Just to clarify, maybe someday we'll do a, a, a video instead of a podcast and people will be able to and it'll see. It'll be a two second clip of me doing the dialectics hand gesture. <laughs> My, I TA undergraduates and I've never TA'd anything like, like Hegel or anything dialectical, but I've still found myself doing that hand gesture often enough when I think things are interpenetrating and dialectical um, just to myself while talking to the students that they noticed I had a special hand gesture and asked me what it was about, and I was mortified. I, I, I think it's useful of you. <laughs> also, it looks kind of like a Kamehameha. It, it, yeah, okay, we can't... <laughs> yeah. No, this um, is terrible podcasting. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I hope you... Look, I hope we can at least lighten up a Hegel-heavy episode. Yeah, but, yeah, at no, least so, we're not eating on Mike. Yeah, so one of the things about Hegel is also that he was responding to Kant, because 
an important element of Kantian uh, philosophy that goes on to be the thing everything's responding to that's explicitly the bit of Kant invoked in critical theory and science fiction is the idea that you can't, according to Kant, you cannot directly uh, perceive like noumenal reality. The, the underlying thing in itself is not accessible because you're always perceiving it either through senses or through rationality that is itself not unlimited. It is a kind of cognition. Everything is mediated by our thoughts and by our experience. So we are unable to directly perceive the world as it is at a fundamental level, only the phenomena that appear in that interaction between our perception and the thing in itself. This is not to say that knowledge is impossible, but merely that knowledge must always be looking at itself and asking, how am I producing this information? How am I producing these perceptions of knowledge? And that's the that becomes, for Friedman, the basis of dialectical thought. That self-criticism, that critiquing the internal means and the cognitive means even by which we produce knowledge of the world so as to constantly be recognizing the way in which the perceiving subject, myself, for example, uh, is created in interaction with the object. Which is kind of heady. Yeah, yeah. Like this, the fundamental element of sort of dialectical crit thought and uh, and criticality in Friedman is this constant returning back to, well, where is this coming from? What is the society that is creating this? How everything being taken together at once as this self-producing loop uh, or, you know, self-criticality. And... This also means that a lot of science fiction, which lacks that self-criticism and self, uh, that self-criticality, it's pre-critical or pre-dialectic. That word gets thrown around a bunch in the book. I don't think he actually uses the word pre-dialectic. Okay, maybe maybe I synthesized that incorrectly. Well, he does use the word pre-critical constantly. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not surprised. He uses the word pre-critical constantly, and also critical thought for him is dialectical. dialectical. Yeah. Um, but I think... I think dialectical thought is technically speaking a broader category and you can like, cause there are pre Hegelian dialectics. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Hegel himself is not one of his dialectical thinkers because, you know, for, for all of the reasons a Marxist would not consider Hegel to be critical. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think a big part is, is that, uh, Hegel is totally idealistic. Like yes. The idealist. Yes. Yes. Um, In the sense of like, Idealism as in the mind and spirit and God are the important terms, not material reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even that, like, those are the only things that really exist. Yes, um, everything else is epiphenomena. Yeah, whereas opposed to that is materialism, where you basically believe that the material world is what exists. Yeah. And uh, other things like that either don't exist or aren't important or are only yeah, produced by materiality. No, it's there's a whole history of materialism. And, uh, you know, one of the elements of science fiction to Carl Friedman is materialism that is yes. concerned with material reality, material causation, and thus materialist history, which is very important for leftists as yeah. a political uh, sort of... As a political and historical model. I would say it's specifically important for Marxists, not for okay. leftists. Broadly. Okay, yes, I'm letting my Marxist bias show. Yes, it is specifically important for Marxists, and it's one of the core elements of Marxism, which means that even when people want to talk about ideas and intellectual history while being a Marxist, they will insist they are in fact being even more materialistic by talking about it this way. I do think one can talk about intellectual history in a material way. I think that's true. You can talk about, I just like, think that there's a lot of people who really want to talk about, like, 
the interaction of ideas and really want to find a way to talk about that while still calling themselves a materialist, like, or by saying they're doing materialism or more material even than other people. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, so that's maybe a big question about this book. Do you think this book is not materialist? I mean, I think this book is fundamentally, like, I think there is a complicated thing, because if you believe in that sort of Kantian critique of critique, that sort of, that, uh, that dialectical thought, you are saying that thought is the important thing you're doing here. That's not that's at least a little bit idealist from my perspective, mm. which isn't to say that you can't have a, uh, a materialism and a, a focus through uh, materiality, a focus on material history, on, on production, on these sorts of forces. And I do think he consistently goes, I don't, you know, we don't want this to just be a cultural critique of science fiction. We want this to be a material critique as well. This isn't just about what people believe and think and feel, but also about the forces that produce those beliefs and thoughts and feelings. But I do think that it is often really about genre. And I, as someone who, you know, wants to study genres really interested in it, I have a hard time justifying myself the idea that studies of genre are fundamentally materialist if when they're not like histories of the production of genre and its marketing and the economics that go into it if you want to talk about genre as a like an idealized form or a tendency of thought you are at least a little bit straying away from economic history and i think that's fine yeah no that's fair i Hmm. I think I believe in a more expansive materialism than you do, but I don't know that now is the time for that because we don't I mean, have infinite I, time to record. Yeah, yeah. I don't fundamentally disagree. I guess what I should say is I think that the insistence on talking about it as materialism and the desire to not be accused of immaterial uh, thoughts can produce some very odd ways of justifying stuff that is not like opposed to materialism but is doing things that aren't directly economics yeah no that's fair it's just i don't think something doesn't have to be like an economics textbook to be materialist no right no. like something doesn't have to be capital to be no, materialist no. But, um but but no i i get what you're saying um this is really about rhetoric as much as it's about like uh technique yes i definitely agree with you that there is a a desire oh. um among, you know, among Marxists or, or similar sort of strains of academics to insist on materialist thought, insist that one's thought is materialist mm -hmm. always, even in the most um, extreme of cases. Yep. You're listening to Marxist Vineyard Tours, a, <laughs> <laughs> a materialist uh science fiction podcast, I guess. And this is actually, I think, worth noting the fact that we're sort of, we're just going into history of philosophy and discussing, like, materialism and critical theory. I think, to some extent, this is what Friedman wants. And we don't need to give him what he, no. Um, we, what he wants is to make the discussion of science fiction a part of and driver for this kind of leftist analysis, this kind of critical analysis. Yeah. Um, and I think that he... At the very least, uh, the book is very successful in driving that that way of thinking and driving attention to those sorts of things because it is a work of critical theory as much as it is a work that is just about science fiction as a genre. I mean, again, he argues they're the same thing, but, you know. <sighs> yeah, do we want to... We haven't really explained 
why he sees science fiction as like that science fiction has a sort of affinity an affinity to critical theory that it is like i i mean i read the prefigure the core sentences which which yeah yeah yeah. said it but um but no we should turn back to that which is i think to some extent i i guess i've been sort of skimming over it because it just feels to me very much like he's just ratifying darko suvin's position yes i think you're right it's very very suvinian um like the way that he talks about uh science fiction as historical yes um, as like in historical time right yeah, and yeah. and oriented toward the future but in a way that like oriented toward the future and therefore historical yes oriented towards the future the, th- the line he has that i really quite like or to, to approximate it is it makes the present the determinate future of the determinate past of this fictional future it historicizes the present by placing it as the past of this fictional future. And I think that's a really interesting insight, and I think that does explain a lot of the affinity between science fiction and sort of historicizing modes of thought. I think I've got your thing that you were just... Yeah. uh, The future is crucial to science fiction, not as a specific chronological register, but as a locus of radical alterity to the mundane status quo, which is thus estranged and historicized as the concrete past of potential future. Yes. And I think that's a really interesting insight, that there's a way in which science fiction, even when it's not about the future itself, but simply by the, you know, by the cognitive estrangement, by the operation of the genre, makes the present into something you can think of as part of history and as something that will produce different futures or possible futures depending on what happens now or was produced by different possible pasts. This is also where you get alternate uh, history stories like uh, The Man in the High Castle, the Philip K. Dick novel that he goes into. And this also kind of reminds me of something that he that comes up a couple times and, and that he uh, is is that... He, you know, he says, um, not just a couple times, he does say that, uh, you know, that science fiction and critical theory um, insist upon utopian possibility. Yes. Um, And I think the fact that that's a controversial statement about both categories of work. Um, It's not, I don't even necessarily disagree, or rather, I don't necessarily disagree that critical theory and science fiction that deserve the names uh, in some way insist on utopian possibility. Well, first um, we also have to define utopian possibility, which is like Ernst Bloch's concept of utopia as the principle of hope, which is really different from, uh, like, utopia as a genre, or as like a, 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 you know, the place that you set things when you want to say they're good. Yes, it's different from that, and it's also different from, uh, utopian socialism, which it's a, which is its own like historical well is a criticism marx made of other social no 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 they called themselves utopians Utopians. great yeah 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 um i mean he he the the way that marx criticized utopian socialists turned it into a term of yeah yeah (laughs) no he kind of won that fight he was he had a poster soul Mm -hmm. uh but no the um so the utopian stuff of, of Bloch, and again I feel like our entire structure for reviewing books and, like, discussing them has completely collapsed in this episode from minute one. I, it's hard to go yeah, through. Yeah, no, it is. Honestly, I think that, uh, I think that Friedman would feel that that's appropriate, that, uh, it's not, like, a sort of totally 
linear... We, we are constantly reflecting back yes, on the it, thing we, we already being, said. It is, in fact, forcing criticality, whether that's because it's very dense and elaborate and kind of abstruse and relies on a massive history of philosophy in order to meaningfully understand it, versus whether it is, in fact, simply causing us to think more deeply and critically inherently, I leave as an exercise to the listener... But I do, no, because I think that's a genuine thing about a lot of uh, critical theory is that as well as being a really dense, rich, interesting body of criticism, it can tend to be hard to read. And in fact, it is one of those areas of academic writing where difficulty of reading is sometimes equated to deepness of thought. And I'm not saying that's true of Friedman. I think he's doing an admirable job of trying to make this as lucid as possible while being as elusive and densely referential to an entire intellectual tradition as he is. But I also think that this is a step above the difficulty of reading Suvin. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And again, I think that this is something that's pretty common to a lot of, you know, when leftists say read theory or we talk about critical theory— a lot of it's hard to read. A lot of it's dense oh, and elaborate. Although I will say that, like, a lot of Marx is not that hard. Yeah. Uh, like, a lot of important a lot of important uh, works in the history of what Friedman would, would call, call critical, critical theory, theory. Um, are not... I, I don't yes. want people... I, I really am frustrated by the perspective that one often has, that, that one often encounters, of, like... Theory is hard to read, so I don't need to try to understand things about the world. Yes. No, I, no, I, I totally agree. My perspective is, I think that the production of works influenced by critical theory, it is good to try to make them lucid because you often don't need to be as difficult as they are, at least in the latter half of the 20th century and onwards. Not because I think that, say, uh, you know, Marx was certainly writing to be understood and he would like to be understood. The Frankfurt School, writing to be understood. Every single science fiction author we read, with the possible exception of Philip K. Dick, writing to be understood. Yeah, although I will say sometimes, like, Russ is hard to read. Yes. In much the same way that, like, critical theory of, like, the 70s, and yeah, contemporary yeah. to when she's writing, is hard to read. And I think Russ, like the best types of theory that are also quite hard to read yeah, yeah, yeah russ's fiction is like conceptually complicated and therefore the way she's written it is like the clearest Reflecting, way yeah, yeah to express the idea she's yes expressing. i i don't mean to say that i'm against conceptually difficult or complicated fiction or theory i, I, I know be, you're I not be, saying that i'm just saying that i think that there can be a tendency to sort of take the take what you just said which is this is complicated because it is attempting to communicate difficult and complicated ideas, and there's no way to simplify that enough without losing something. And you can have the reverse of that, which is, because this is difficult to read, it must be complicated. Or, if this is complicated, it must be difficult to read. Yes. And I think that that can, uh, you know, again, we keep getting into things that are just about critical theory in general, and then also related to science fiction. So I do think Friedman is doing a really good job of proposing his argument and putting forward things that make you think in his terms. Yeah. We are currently captured by Friedman. Yes, yes, we are. This, I'm not saying everything we do will be this, but right now this podcast is post-Friedmanian. Yes, I mean, we, we did, we are trying to explain Friedman in particular, so. Yeah, yeah, but oh. like, <laughs> I, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... 
apologize, apologies if this is incomprehensible. We'll, we'll be less like this next time, I promise. Uh, we're doing our best. Yeah, we're doing our best. We're doing our best, but it's still complicated. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, Anyways, sorry, where were we with before I, that? I wanted to talk a little bit about utopian possibility. Yes, um, there was There was a specific little thing that I wanted to point out, which is that he believes that, like... What most people would call dystopias, what he calls negative utopias. In the style of Suvin. Yes. Um, or anti-utopia. Yeah, the reason he'll call them negative utopias or anti-utopias is that he feels that in, like, the... Basically, in criticism, there is contained, uh, inevitably, this utopian possibility or this hope that something else could happen, basically. Yes, and I, I think we should really briefly discuss Bloch, who yes. is a really interesting figure. He's a uh, Jewish semi, like, the, he's a leftist theorist who is also interested in proposing, like, a theological mystical version of history, um, in which he believes that one of the fundamental principles of human thought and experience in history is hope, which he calls utopia. And he very clearly, and, okay, clearly is maybe the wrong word for this, but very distinctly separates Utopia, the genre, which is also the genre that is inverted to make the anti-utopia, which is another reason for calling it a negative or anti-utopia, is to say utopia is the genre, it is flipped around to make the dystopian genre. Um, but that genre is only an approximation or an attempt to capture something that is universal to human experience, which is, you know, uh, in Bloch's very sort of evocative terms, uh, the version of the world that we are going towards always, that we are always attempting to find in the hopes that we will eventually reach what is the true homeland of humanity, which is Utopia Manifest. Yeah, and, and that there's a a kind of, like, yeah, um... There's a principle of hope. Yes, um... No, Bloch is very moving and very interesting, and he actually uh, is where the term novum comes from that Suvin, like, re-packages re um, yeah. into the element of science fiction, because Suvin is very explicitly also in the Blochian tradition, as is Friedman. The idea that there is this thing in science fiction which is this utopian principle of hope. Uh, a phrase that I think Friedman uses, glimpses or, or glimmers of utopia. Little elements in even works that are, like, politically horrific to him. He uses uh, Heinlein's Farnham's Freehold as an example of a right-wing fever dream that nonetheless contains authentic glimmers of utopia. Little details or moments where the world of the book is different from the world of the present in a way that maybe points to a better world instead of its substantially worse world overall. Um, so you get this very interesting thing where, you know, this sort of Blockian utopia is actually less present in the genre utopia, such as Sir Thomas More's Utopia, than it is in science fiction in general, because utopian glimmers are a fundamental element of cognitive estrangement, where it says the world could be different and it could be better, whereas utopia is fundamentally a satire. It has certain elements in which it is not a novelistic narrative, which uh, Friedman believes has more capacity for this utopian glimmer than it is a travel narrative, which is sort of inherently static and not changing in time. Moore's Utopia does not include any sort of procedure or process or historical suggestion for how Engl Moore's England could become like the land of King Utopus, 
whereas science fiction necessarily does. More utopian than utopia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is also reminding me um, that uh, uh, Friedman also clearly considers like the works by which the works for which the term science fiction was coined to be some of the less science fictional he science calls fiction them works. Weakly science fictional, yes. And we, I was, I was hoping we'd get here. No, he's. Um, and this, this is actually where I think I have my strongest criticism of the book, which is that even more than Suvin, I would say, like, in the same way that he intensifies other elements of Suvin, he intensifies this, he doesn't think most science fiction is science fiction. Friedman thinks that the vast majority of science fiction, especially pulp adventure story science fiction or you know, uh, Gernsbachian science fiction. Or almost all, like, uh, movies and TV science oh, fiction. Oh, yeah, we're not even, even, like, he does not recognize the existence of Blade Runner in this, and he's a big dick fan, and he's, and Blade Runner just doesn't get referenced at all. So, yeah, cinematic, te- uh, cinematic and televised science fiction is not. It is weekly science fictional at best in the account given in this book. And I can't think of a single counterexample. I think he does have a footpoint footnote where he talks about Tarkovsky's Solaris. Yeah, but he also says that it turns it into a Dostoevskyan fantasy, which it does. So, like, even then, he's being critical. He's saying it's a good movie, but that it's not science fictional, or at yes. least not as science fictional as Lem's Solaris. Yes. No, yep. I just, I, I bring that up as almost the, you know, what do you call it? The exception that proves, proves the, the rule. rule. Yeah, like, yeah. he can bring up a, a, a film that he likes, but... But he has to be clear that it's it's become less science fictional by, not by being made a film, but just incidentally it is less science fictional. Yeah. So, yeah, no, he's, he's very focused on the novel, especially. Like, he mentions short stories, but the novel's clearly where his heart is, which makes sense. He's in the... He's also positioning himself in the literary analysis tradition of Lukash and Bakunin, or is it Bakhtin? Bakhtin, yeah. Bakhtin, yes. Bakhtin's the anarchist? Yes, he is. Yes, thank you. I just got that mixed up. Um, But his, uh, you know, someday we should probably do a thing about Lukash on this podcast when we we run out of straightforwardly science fiction studies works. Yeah, Uh, I I was thinking we should do a thing on Bakhtin on this podcast. Yeah, so... And again, this is one place where I think Friedman is very successful, is in at least convincing us, who are admittedly a pretty easy audience for this, that there is this deeper archive of analysis that, even if it never references science fiction, has a place in science fiction studies, which, that's just the nature of literary studies and scholarship, that there's going to be things from before your period that apply to your period and so on. But he's really, really trying, you know, going hard for the idea that, like, no, Lukash should have cared about science fiction. Bakhtin should have cared about science fiction, and that they didn't is a historical accident and a malevolent one. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm. I'm just uh, throughout throughout our discussion so far. I've been doing term searches in my uh, EPUB um, just because sometimes that's useful. Um, and so I found that the first time he mentions Bakhtin, he's uh, putting him directly parallel to Philip K. Dick. As oh. <laughs> both being essentially um, theorists of style, um, but like uh, a challenge to kind of the theorists of style in a, a particular way. Um, yeah, and specifically, this is before his like stylistic analysis of Dick. Yes. Uh, which, admittedly, not one of the most convincing parts of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I found that particular section where he's arguing that 
I mean, what really it reminded me of, and this is maybe a little bit unfair, is the thing that Delaney criticized in uh, about 5,750 words, which is that people will go, actually, sure, this seems like really pro, you know, prosaic, workaday uh, writing that's just getting across the information it wants, but actually it's muscular and like in this case dialectical and like forcing you to see these ideas or bring them together even though it seems really like straightforward it's like i don't think so i think it is science fictional it's really science fictional dick is in fact a very science fictional author but it is also really kind of brusque straightforward prose at this point in Dick's writing. Like, Dick has very workmanlike prose as at the level of style, and when his style gets weird and breaks down, you know, in something like Martian Time Slip or Ubik or various points in other works, that's where it gets really interesting. That's where his, I mean, frankly, his paranoia comes to the fore and shapes the style, whereas when he's writing more straightforwardly, you know, uh, normative uh, novelistic prose, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. And that that's my feeling on it, in part inspired by the fact that while I really enjoy Philip K. Dick's short stories, they do tend to be really straightforward, golden age science fiction short stories that he could sell to pulps. It's his, uh, it's for the most part his uh, novels where things get really weird and interesting. So I don't think that he has some kind of like deep subversive prose style going on. I think he's just got a straightforward style. Yeah, Friedman's very willing to ascribe subversive potential to things where I think that's... Things where I raise my eyes at that. Um, which, by the way, he's taking that like directly from Bloch, um, who is willing to... Let me see. Let me find this. Um, Bloch, like, he, he quotes extensively um, this analysis in... Uh, the hope principle i guess is what the translation of yep, the title yep, yep. is anyway um uh analysis an analysis of quote wishful images which again i'm just going to read what um friedman says because yeah which extend from the happy endings of popular films and romances to the communal longings of nazi germany and the ku klux klan so Bloch is interested Bloch a a Jew, right? Like, he's not being sympathetic to these horrific ideologies. Yeah. Um, but he is interested in analyzing, like, what might... How might these express these utopian longings? Yes. Because these utopian longings are universal. Yeah, this is, you know, it's similar to that thing with Farnham's Freehold. You can find little hints of some kind of utopian desire in, uh, you know, Heinlein's most right-wing and, you know, to some extent, least uh, humanistic works. Um, and, you know, I think there's a there's a complicated thing here. And in the case of the Philip K. Dick reading for style and things like that, it also feels a little bit like he really needs this author to be also stylistically great. Like, you can't have a flaw in the author you're holding up as the greatest science fiction author against what Friedman is very conscious of as a canonical disregard for science fiction. Like, really conscious of it. He actually has many footnotes where he more or less says that science fiction has been unfairly kept from the Academy because it is too subversive and contains too much critical potentiality. Yeah. Like yeah, he 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 basically, I mean, 
He explicitly says that he doesn't mean this in a conspiratorial sense, but he does say that science fiction has been kept down because it's too radical. Yes, and while, again, he does say it's not in a conspiratorial sense, I honestly think that one of the reasons he really, really likes the style of Dick is that Dick is paranoid and there's a certain kind of of critical analysis which arrives at paranoia. Like, this this is not a super radical claim on my part. Like, there's a lot of... Uh, sort of post- by which you mean in this case not a super like uh, unprecedented claim. Yes, on your it is part. not a super unprecedented claim on my part. It's a pretty well established line of criticism, which I think Friedman would probably dismiss out of hand, um, or at the very least he'd say what's so wrong with paranoia. But there is well, a... he'd also probably have like some psychoanalytic things to say about that. Yeah, um, yeah, which no, I there's... don't understand. <laughs> no, there's there's plenty that you can. There's responses to it. I'm not. I do not want to be read here as immediately being like, aha, critical theorists are all just paranoids. Like that's that's really not my intention. But rather, there's been some really interesting work on how Jameson. That's another. Uh, critic that uh, Friedman references pretty often, um, and the sort of, uh, the development of critical theory has a certain paranoid quality where you are con- you already know the answer. Someone's out to get you. Capitalism is bad, and capitalism is bad, um, and you are looking for the signs that would lead you to that answer in the work. And so, this, and this is the sort of the argument that para- paranoid criticism is a meaningful thing in critical theory because paranoid criticism operates in a certain way that is actually very common. Again, you know what you're looking for, now you just have to find the proof. And the more hidden the proof is, the more insidiously present the thing you're looking for is. A work that seems to have no references whatsoever to capitalist hegemony actually has the most damning of all references, which is a intentional, you know, obscuring of capitalist hegemony, which it was produced under. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, I do see what you mean. And, um, yeah, I do... As with so many of the writers that we read, I have to wonder what they would make of, like, 2010s and later the the domination of what I think are is unmistakably science fiction of, like, yeah. popular culture. yeah. Um, the weekly science fictional Marvel Cinematic Universe. Exactly. And, like, obviously, yes, Friedman would call it weekly science fictional. Yeah. Um, but, like, I think the the important point here is not so much, like, oh, would they think it was good? Because, like, no. No. <laughs> uh, but, like, what I do mean, they make of the fact that it's culturally dominant? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some interesting places you can go just from critical theory and science fiction. I think of the most basic one being, and again, this is a paranoid reading. And again, I don't mean that as a negative. I just think that... There's a re- that Dick has paranoid writing and therefore paranoid reading goes real well with it. Um, I think part of the paranoid reading would be this is to some extent the incorporation into a postmodern frame, as he discusses in the, the end of the book, of the signals and the signs and the markers of science fiction without its fundamental essence as cognitive estrangement, which therefore allows for the incorporation and neutering of real science fiction. Or, in other words, um, if you have, uh, I don't know, Interstellar or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars, actually, that's the perfect example. If you have Star Wars, you're less likely to read Joanna Russ. Yeah, yeah, that like, might be the the claim. I think that's the sort of the easy one to make, which is 
by incorporating a spectacular usage of things that people think of as science fiction but not what is, to Friedman, the essence of science fiction, you can effectively, you know, it's the it's the classic Splenda for hummingbirds thing. You put the, mm. the sugar substitute in the in the hummingbird feeder. They think they're getting real food and they starve to death. Right, right. Um, that image has always haunted me. It's just it's grim. Yeah, no, it's true. Birds dying is depressing. <laughs> Birds dying is depressing, and also like you know, the 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 idea that they're like getting what seems in all ways to be sustaining them and allowing them to live their lives then they don't know why they're getting so tired and then they die it's depressing no i look i don't i don't disagree (laughs) (laughs) sorry okay (sighs) um do do we want to maybe touch a bit on some of his actual like discussions his excursuses yeah i'm I'm trying to think if there's anything else like in the articulations that we want to touch on i mean i think briefly we can touch on uh the fact that he's definitely a uh, Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel yes. person, which yeah, and he explicitly does the kind of special pleading that I find myself doing sometimes as well, which is like, okay, yes, there wasn't an immediate sort of um, oh, you have to do that, yeah, like the science no. Nobody was writing science fiction immediately after Frankenstein. It didn't really start happening until, like, later in the century. And yet, but... Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we, we discussed this thoroughly in the Frankenstein episode, and uh, I think it's a perfectly reasonable place to make special pleading. I do it all the time. Um, but I will say that he's really, like Suvin, not a fan of the Gothic, and therefore is very clear that, like, Frankenstein is having to pull itself up out of the Gothic. But unlike Suvin, he's not anti-Frankenstein. He's pretty pro-Frankenstein. I think in part because he's much willing to say that a socially conservative work of science fiction can still be good at science fictioning, which uh, Frankenstein is being identified as a socially conservative work of science fiction in that it is critical of the scientist. Uh, mm. Another thing that's important is that uh, in his articulations, he discusses how he sees positivistic understandings of science as one of the things science fiction is set against, which is to say the idea that knowledge is purely a building up of facts and a uh, sort of direct pre-critical comprehension of the world, that is to say positivism, is something that really good science fiction undermines and challenges. That's one of the main reasons he brings in Solaris by Lem. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. true. Solaris is definitely an... I think you can say Solaris is an anti-positivist novel. I... Or or Solaris is not a novel that accepts positivism. How's it, that? Yeah, it's, it is not a positivistic novel. And I think the question of what the point or goal of positivism is and like what, how one does science in the face of something that is not acceding to positivist inquiry is a big part of Solaris. I, yes. I certainly don't disagree. Yeah, I guess you're right. To call it anti-positivist is to resolve things that are not resolved in the novel itself. Yeah. Um, Solaris is good. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, and, and it is that ambiguity, by the way, that he really loves yes. about Solaris. Yes, that it is... He, and he says what makes it truly dialectical is that it does not give us a resolution to the fundamental question in Solaris, which is uh, the attempt to make contact with the alien ocean on the planet Solaris, um, and the sort of massive amounts of uh, science that has been done to try to understand Solaris, all of which has ultimately failed up to the point of the novel, and 
you know, I think there's a number of interesting things in his reading of Solaris, but this is one of the most written about novels in science fiction studies. Like, Solaris is discussed everywhere. Yeah, no, that's true. And while I think he has an interesting discussion of it, he's very clearly indebted to and drawing on a number of different accounts. To some extent, I think that saying Solaris expresses, like, critical theory and is, like, a work of critical thought about the nature of thought is... I mean, literally in my copy of Solaris that I have around here, uh, Anne McCaffrey is quoted as saying, Solaris will make you question what it means to be conscious and intelligent. It's like, yeah, everyone who reads this comes away with that understanding. We don't... This is, to some extent, a uh, a slam dunk for his theory. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I think the way that he uh, brings in Lacan and is like, there's an affinity between... Lacan and Lem, or between this novel and Lacan's work. I think that's good. I yeah. don't think anyone else has done that. No, um, I think I think he definitely brings new... You know, everyone brings new things when they do their reading of Solaris, because it is a very rich text. You just get... There's so much you can get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Like the Solaris themselves! <laughs> Sorry, that's a Solaris reference. Um, but actually... So, here's a question. Do we want to go through the excurses one by one and discuss what he's doing with each of them and like give a capsule description of the novel that he's responding to because so far we have failed to really give a description of Solaris that would actually make his analysis useful or do we want to discuss the Xerxes collectively and particular points of interest within them and accept that we're probably not going to gloss five science fiction novels I would prefer the latter yeah, that's, uh, that's what I figured. I was more or less making the argument for it. Yeah, but... you, you, it was a bit of a leading question, but I already knew my answer anyway, so. <laughs> okay, so I was leading you to where you were already, and I didn't need to do that. Is yeah, it, it's fine. I was engaging in paranoid reading of what you were saying. <laughs> fair. You know what? Fair hit. Right, uh, a fair hit. I do want to quickly mention, um, uh, just because it, I ran across it uh, pan, uh, paging through, before we get to the excursies, I mentioned the idea that he's constantly referencing the the, um, the sort of canon's uh, unwillingness to accept science fiction because it's too subversive and too thoughtful. Yes. The axe grinding is immense. Like, I want to be clear, this isn't just him, like, offhandedly mentioning it. This is paragraphs of axe grinding that show up, one of which is like... Um, uh, it is not by accident that the analysis of science fiction has for some time now constituted one of the most critically informed areas of literary studies generally. It is instructive in this regard to contrast the conceptual level attained in a typical issue of science fiction studies during the late 1970s with the parentheses much lower end paren conceptual level in a typical contemporary issue of PMLA, the flagship journal of professional literary studies in North America, or ELH, which is generally considered its closest rival in general academic prestige. And this is real fighting words, right? Like, yeah. this is explicitly saying science fiction studies, the journal that he is an editor of at the time of this publication, if I remember correctly, has been and is simply superior in what he considers to be the fundamental best kind of thought, critical thought, which the an academic is generally speaking quite uh, fond of, as sort of um, simply better in science fiction, and non-science fictional studies is simply behind. Y yeah, I know it's um. 
that's a, that's a wild sentence. <laughs> yeah, and and it's not alone. Like this is not a an isolated incident. Across the entire articulation, you repeatedly get these mentions of, I mean, these very resentful mentions of which I can understand if you are a science fiction studies person who feels that you are in fact really carrying the torch for critical theory and uh, criticality and you're being ignored by the wider uh, the genres beyond science fiction I can see how you get this kind of very overt sense of persecution um yeah uh just a brief thing that yeah. I want to mention because I was doing some quick googling I wanted to figure out if he was in fact an editor on SFS when this book was published yeah I don't think he was an editor on SFS oh my bad um it's it's okay I mean I just I haven't found that in his uh immediate um, I really thought he re- mentioned working with SFS in, in an editorial capacity well I, I definitely think he published in it oh like, he definitely published in it quite a lot in fact he's, he's he was very prolific at this time in his career and I don't know if I don't know if he's continued to be prolific but I think that when this was published I think he'd published 30 articles in SFS and other journals yes but the thing that I wanted to mention is that I have found his like um, faculty page yeah. you know with like a list of his selected publications is this one of them stalking? no <laughs> no this is citation i know i know i just want to mention that he coordinated a special issue of pmla on science fiction and literary studies the next millennium in may 2004 so four years after publishing this pmla apparently went yeah, he's right. <laughs> that is the most like self-aggrandizing way to take it for science fiction studies. So we'll take the W. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, he has. Um, uh, uh, he has a very clear remit, um, which I think also this is one thing I want to talk about with the excurses is that like. The authors he chooses in the excursies are the authors he generally writes about, is my impression. He write, He's, like, done interviews with Delaney. He's written extensive things about Le Guin. Again, everyone writes about Lem. Uh, and I, I keep saying that because the next bit of my dissertation I have to write starts with a brief discussion of Lem Solaris. Because everyone writes about Solaris. You can't get away from it. And then moves on to uh, other stuff, and specifically Disco Elysium. But, um... He, uh, you know, obviously he's written, like, a special issue. He edited a special issue on Philip K. Dick at some point. Like, he's done a ton of work with these authors in particular. Yes. And I think on some level, the thesis of this, that critical theory and science fiction are fundamentally aligned, is far more convincing to me not applied to science fiction in general, but definitely applied to these science fiction authors of whom four of the five are extremely critically aware individuals who wrote critical theory of their own. I mean, okay, Lem's cri- Lem is in a somewhat different tradition, so it's hard to say that he wrote critical theory precisely. I'd have to dig into Lem's uh, nonfiction to decide if that fits what Friedman's saying. But Delaney, Russ, and Le Guin. Yes, Delaney, Russ, and Le Guin as like maybe the three core authors of the new wave who weren't Michael Moorcock. Um, like, three major figures in the new wave of science fiction in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, we read a Delaney piece for this podcast, right? Yeah. I am constantly going and looking at Delaney's critical writing about science fiction. He's very, th- and he's very theoretically informed. Le Guin 
also wrote about writing science fiction, was very politically and theoretically informed. Her novel, The Dispossessed, which is the one he talks about here, is one of the sort of, I'd say, uh, modern classics of anarchism as a novel. Yeah, um, I think it's, I think one could call The Dispossessed theory fiction. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, I mean, uh, Friedman is basically arguing that all science fiction is yes, theory he's, fiction. He's ar- yeah, and I guess that's basically what I'm saying, which is, I think possibly what's actually happening here is that the science fiction he considers worthy of elevation and therefore worthy of the name is theory fiction. Yeah. Like, I think that this, to me, resolves his general disdain for so much that goes under science fiction, even stuff that I think is quite good. Like, I'm willing to bet he would not find much theoretical in Gene Wolfe. Mm. Even though I think Gene Wolfe has some really interesting and theoretically interesting stuff, he's not a critical theorist writing critical theory through his science fiction. Meanwhile, Russ absolutely is. Le Guin absolutely is with the dispossessed. And I'll note Le Guin's fantasy and Delaney's fantasy are not referenced at all in this novel. That's true. This book, I did it again! (laughs) This is a a terrible thing to be happening. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, I mean, okay, I want to talk more about the excursuses, yeah, but yeah, this yeah. just feels like a natural place to go at the moment. Like, does that mean you are unconvinced of his central thesis of the affinity between critical theory and science fiction? I think that I, I would modify it in my usage to science fiction has a particular avenue for critical theory Mm. that is uniquely uh, valuable. That there are things that science fiction can do with critical theory and can be critical and dialectical related to historical materiality, related to historical contingency, related to the things he recognizes, but that these are not the only things science fiction can do and that they're not guaranteed to be done by science fiction. And that you can't... Again, if you take the sort of hyper, the neo-Suvinian, hyper-Suvinian position he's taking and carve out everything that doesn't provide, you know, free, uh, Friedmanian science fiction to its degree, you get a very small genre. Um, and to some extent, I just think that, yeah, the new wave was really good. Yeah, you know? yeah. He basically he basically defines the new wave because he doesn't use the phrase new wave at all. Yes, but he frequently says like um, when, he basically refers to the the current age of science fiction, the current like the modern period of science fiction as beginning with the new wave and yes. being defined by the new and wave. being the point at which science fiction attained its highest intensity and to some extent is continuing in the person's excuse. In the persons of the New Wave authors who, at time of writing, are, I think, mostly alive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think only Lem of the, or maybe only Dick, of the authors he, he uh, writes about were deceased at, uh, was deceased at the time of, the, uh, of publication. And so he clearly considers the New Wave to be an ongoing thing because the authors of the New Wave are still writing. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I don't know what he thinks about the state of science fiction right now, because I think science fiction right now is, broadly speaking, a lot less critical theory-esque 
than it was during the new wave. I think that the new I think that you can make a really good argument for the new wave as this moment where critical theory and science fiction totally intersect and produces works like The Dispossessed that are both totally science fiction and fully theory fiction. But I don't know if that's a an ongoing trend or quality of science fiction. I don't know if it was a quality of all of the best science fiction of that era. And I don't know if it's a quality that we can rely on science fiction to produce again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm... You know, to bring this to the type of materialism that you will acknowledge always as full materialism... Yeah. I don't think that you can say that science fiction is a, like, privileged category for critical theory when critical theory has, in fact, denigrated science fiction. Like, and and popular culture, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, there's different varieties of critical theory, but I would even argue that this book, to a certain extent, denigrates actually existing science fiction as a genre formation. Yes, and, and that's kind of what I'm saying, is that, like... He wants to argue that there is a theoretical way in which these things have the, these these genres, really. Yeah. Critical theory, I think you could honestly call that a genre, although I'm not sure mm-hmm. he would. Um, but, it really depends on how you define genre. Yeah. Well, he defines genre at length. Yeah, yes. And, and I if, think it probably excludes critical yes, theory. Yeah, I think um, it, it has to be fiction, or at least... Yeah, maybe. But, uh, like... Yeah, I, I just... I really want to believe in, like the unique possibilities or the special if not unique possibilities of science fiction yeah um but ultimately i think that has to be seen more as a potential than an actuality not just in the science fiction works themselves but in but in the way that theory has approached them yeah no i think that's i think that's a very reasonable way to talk about it i yeah, I would also like to believe that science fiction is inherently liberatory. You know, what, what's the uh, what's the tweet? Uh, science fiction is communist and the exact same kind of communist that I am. <laughs> like, I want it to turn to... I want science fiction itself, the spirit of science fiction, to uh, uh, come to me and explain to me that it agrees totally with my general goals for humanity as a genre. Um, but... I do think that Friedman is capturing some really interesting ideas here and some some potentialities in science fiction that, again, I think the new wave really brought forward and, in fact, produced some truly fantastic works of science fiction that were intensely science fictional. So I don't think he's wrong that there are affinities between science fiction as a genre and its potentials and, the, and its sort of expression of itself as a genre and critical theory and sort of, especially because I am somewhat skeptical of the idea that critical theory and criticality necessarily leads to the political ends I would like it to lead to. I think that the capacity for self-reflexive thought and self-reflexive criticism, you know, dialectical criticism, does not necessarily inevitably trend towards a particular result in society at large or even a particular intellectual result of thought. I think that that is, it is desirable that it should go in certain directions and one hopes it will, but I don't think that the mere act of looking at oneself looking inherently produces 
good outcomes. And in fact, you can see this in figures like Nick Land, who is a absolutely a critical, self-reflective, and like uh, theory fiction writing guy who did some real science fiction with the world and is a arch reactionary and just terrible. Yeah. Just terrible. Yeah. Also, like, um, I think one thing that's quite noticeable is that um broad level critical theory capital c capital t capital yeah. t theory really yeah where you express you know that when he says that uh dialectical thought addresses itself to the totality right yes and academic work that expresses itself to the totality has really become like I mean, I guess de classe, but that that's that's too in like that's a bit insulting of a term. People are nervous about attempting to produce it because yes. they feel it is too easy to shoot down and yes. it's very hard to cite. Yes. And like I do think that that's something that in some ways is a development since the publication of this book. I but, I'm not willing to make a claim on that timeline, so I'll believe you. Yeah, well, I'm not since is maybe a strong word. Um, but like, you know, there's something going on. We mentioned when we were talking about this earlier that this is a like end of the '90s, yeah. but pre 2001 book. Yep, yep. Um, and I do think it's really in, like this is not a like end of history book. Very no, much not no, no, that no. at all. Um, it's a Blockian book in which the end of history is not happening. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so in that way, it's, it's not like a product. It, it is, it is bucking a trend, um, a sort of trend of political thought of the nineties. Um, it, it is, it is bucking the kind of, um, depression of the American left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think that there's a kind of, um, his alternative to the end of history is a, you know, dialectical development in which, you know, um, critical thought, as you say, like brings us to liberation. Whereas I think something that I feel like I believe in constant historical change that like buffets us about in random and usually troubling ways. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's fair. Like, I, and I don't even think that's necessarily non-dialectical it's just without yeah. talos yeah uh, no like when i don't like i think history is contingency dialectic. the word for that is contingency i just remembered yeah i'm surprised you didn't remember that that's like your favorite yeah word. it was for a while <laughs> okay 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 god this episode is just but um non-stop like this no but like the thing when i say that like you know we are buffeted about by history i don't i said random and i don't actually mean that um yeah, yeah, yeah. i think history is like determined is in some ways determined by dialectical historical forces. Woof. Um, dialectical historical material, like, someone might call it. Do you, do you want any more uh, adjectives in there? Ugh. You've got a bucket of them. Sorry, I just... I know I have friends listening to this who have read, like, way more communist theory than I have. Uh, and... But have any of them read as much Trotsky as Friedman? Oh my god. Yeah, that's another thing. This guy's a trot, and sometimes <laughs> it becomes very clear. I mean, okay, I do want to quote this section from... This is about the dispossessed, and, you know... Um, 
Uh, I need to quote this. It's incredible. Despite Le Guin's own anarchist convictions, the chief critical theoretical affinity here is, willy-nilly, with a thinker far more dialectical than that than any that anarchism itself has yet produced. Trotsky. And a quick review of certain elements in Trotsky's political theory will help to illuminate Le Guin's novel. <laughs> and then we go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, this is... And that's a little bit taking the piss, and, you know, if Carl Friedman ever listens to this episode, uh, I'm sorry, Carl. But, um... I do think that it is a useful demonstration, the same way that the axe grinding about the PLMA, uh, PML, PMLA, PMLA uh, I'm so good at being an academic, uh, is um, of interest, is that it's not just of its time, but is also particularly communicating the, the deep convictions that are that this is attempting to work out into a sort of programmatic display of the entire genre of science fiction. Uh, these convictions include Trotskyism, but also uh, frustration with the way in which science fiction has been excluded from the canon, um, and frustration with the way in which those elements of science fiction that are most visible are what seem to be most weakly science fictional to Friedman. In in a sense, again the fact that the 60s science fiction that's still going strong isn't the new wave, but Star Wars. And these frustrations and these convictions are often sympathetic, but I do think can produce a more Jeremiah form in this, a more uh, haranguing kind of critique mm. than I think is necessarily uh, a more uncompromising critique. Because, to some extent, it's a critique that desperately wants to believe in itself as a critique, being able to reshape uh, reshape the future. And in critique in general, is being able to reshape the future. Yeah. Which, you know, it's a good ambition. It is. Uh, but yeah, no, there's, there's a number of very interesting and very, you know... Uh, very theoretical things going on, discussions of different genres that lead to science fiction. Again, the discussion of the genre of utopia is, I think, really interesting because it span expands on Suvin's discussion of utopia as a literary form to go, okay, but that's not really the utopia we're interested in because it's not the utopia that really appears in most science fiction, which is an interesting claim. Um, no, there's just there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and... Even if I don't believe in, in criticism's sort of purely autonomous ability to change the world, and that instead uh, contingency and material action and various other things do need to be separated out from it and recognized as their own things going on, uh, I do really appreciate the vision the book has quite often. Yeah, like, no, I agree. Um, I think it's super worth reading. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I if there's if there's anything you get from this is that if you're interested in critical theory or science fiction, this book is worth reading. Um, actually, something he says in the in the introduction is that he really hopes that people who are interested in critical theory but not so much in science fiction will read it and thus recognize why they ought to be interested in science fiction. And frankly. I think that's an incredibly good cause because I do believe science fiction has unique things to offer to a critical approach, unique things to offer in general as a genre. And, you know, it's really interesting contrasting this with uh, Seven Beauties. Mm. Because Seven Beauties is also about the unique things that science fiction as a genre is able to provide um, and attempting to assemble a bunch of them into this, like, you know, large-scale uh, reading of science fiction and why you should read it. 
It's true, but the goals there are so different. Yes. Seven Beauties has no politics. Or rather, it has an implicit politics such as everything has, but like Seven Beauties is not Seven Beauties is kind of new criticism. Like not well, actually, but mm. I'm I'm being very loose there. It's it is interested in the autonomous aesthetic expression within science fiction works. Yes, that's Quite true. Often. That is that is true. And science fiction's ability to represent things which are not themselves, which may have some political valence, you know, uh, there's enough Suvin in Seven Beauties that you can't escape a general leftist thrust, right? But at the same time, a lot of its aesthetics it wants to emphasize don't rely on a political allegiance. That you can, to some extent, it's saying you can get these incredible things out of science fiction even if you don't like leftism at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also it's, and, and I think this is connected to its sort of lack of political vision, um, is that Seven Beauties is not, like, addressed to the fatality at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, lack it, it, of political vision sounds very harsh. No, you're right. I'm being mean about it, and I, that's unkind. But I mean, go listen to our Seven Beauties of Science Fiction episode if you want to hear what I have to say about that book. Yep, yep. I, I just, I do think in contrast to this book... I just, I, I don't think it has a program. I don't think it has a program. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that, I think that Friedman is absolutely as a program. And again, I really think that his program can be glossed as new wave forever. Like this is absolutely stating that the new wave is the pinnacle of science fiction and that we should, you know, uh, we should be endeavoring to maintain that spirit in science fiction and science fiction criticism, uh, into the future. Yeah, and, you know, New Wave Now, New Wave Forever is certainly not something to which you and I are unsympathetic. No, no, God, no, no. The the very mean thing I once said about a particular Hugo winner uh, was, I think Hugo, might have been Hugo and Nebula, but I don't know for sure, and if I'm ambiguous about it, it makes it harder to identify which book I'm being mean about, uh, was, yeah, um... If this is the cutting edge of science fiction, we're just kind of doing donuts in the New Wave's front yard. Uh, like, it it was it was good, it was fine, I enjoyed reading it, but I've been told it was this, like, really experimental cutting work that really threw things forward. And I was just like, this is, this is like the least interesting Joanna Russ novel I've ever read. <laughs> and now... To be fair, I haven't read a ton of Joanna Russ, and it's all been very interesting, so I don't mean that to be, like, totally dismissive of Nameless Book I'm commenting on here. But it really, it, it was, I was told that this was, like, the really, like, again, cutting-edge, experimental, etc., and it just, that it was not even a throwback to the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I can understand a lot of what motivates Friedman in this criticism and what leads him to constructing the total identity of critical theory in science fiction, even if that is fundamentally more an identity of the new wave of science fiction with critical theory. And, you know, again, good book. Um, so yeah, do we want to talk about the excursuses? Excursuses, I think. Excursuses. That one's definitely wrong. You're pronouncing a letter U as E. Exquisitus? Oh my god. Excursoi. It should have... I Look, I am not the type of person to always insist on, like, a Latinized plural, because I think sometimes it's just 
pretentious and sometimes it's actually like wrong um sometimes people pluralize words that they think are latin that aren't but yeah but it should have been excursi or excursi because that would have been so much easier to pronounce and this is like true. clearer yeah yeah no don't disagree so yeah uh a number of novels basically by new wave or philip k dick who's kind of a proto new wave writer in some ways like obviously he's not actually new wave but he's very influential to them uh I know that uh, J.G. Ballard and uh, a couple others get referenced who are also like uh, early New Wave or lead into the New Wave kind of uh, authors. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, do we want to just go through them one by one? We've, we've more or less covered his comments on Solaris. Yeah, I think I think we've talked about Solaris, about like his, his whole uh, analysis of Solaris really uh, hinges around... Um, like radical difference. Well, I would or, argue that all of these hinge around radical difference. That that's true, actually. That's really what he's interested in talking about with these. Yeah, books. I mean, he kind of argues that in in the um, star, uh, stars in my pocket like grains of sand excursus that radical difference is fundamental to at least contemporary critical uh, thought. That like critical thought is dealing with difference and totality, um, which is an interesting statement. Uh, the other thing, I do want to note that in Lem, like I said, he brings in a number of different uh, interpretations of the novel that uh, very, I think, interestingly, he points out often line up with agreeing with one or another character in the novel about the correct interpretation of Solaris and the events on the station near Solaris. Um, like, you know, he dismisses some of them and says, I think, you know, like Kelvin, the protagonist of, of, of Lem's novel, uh, this is... I agree that this is too simplistic. I think Kelvin's analysis there is correct. Um, so there's a bunch of interesting stuff there. I think the most interesting thing is pointing out, uh, you know, again, if you're taking his reading of Lem very seriously, uh, pointing out that in Solaris there is a love story and that this love story is kind of a trap. It's very easy to interpret the events of the novel around the love story and solely in relation to it in the emotional journey of Kelvin, but at the same time, this does away with most of the science fictional questions of cognition and uh, thought and understanding, the, the epistemological dimensions of it, by allowing you to retreat into a simple human narrative, which then the movie version of Solaris by Tarkovsky does. Yeah, he establishes a contrast between the, the humanistic and anti-humanistic readings of the novel and ultimately... You know, there's a total ambiguity between those. Yeah, or you might say a dialectic. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, that, like, like, that's the argument, right? That this is such a dialectical novel that it is constantly proposing and then opposing um, particular ways of reading Solaris. And, you know, the sort of fundamental conclusion that Friedman comes to is you can't answer Solaris. You know, that's the conclusion everyone comes to in reading Solaris. That's the point. Um, but that dialectical thought gets closer than and is the only one that can even begin to propose the questions that you need like i think he literally says that at the end of the section that solaris is a demonstration of the failure of pre-critical thought and the necessity of critical thought yeah yeah i think the the as you say right at the end of the section he says both uh solaris the planet and solaris the novel 
Which he makes that distinction with italicized. You, you're you're so annoyed at this. Uh, it's just it's convenient for him and not for me. Anyway, <laughs> both Solaris and Solaris suggest that the largest questions of the universe may time and again baffle the best efforts of dialectical reason, but also that only dialectical reason is capable of genuinely posing such questions at all. Yeah. Um. Uh, so that's. I think it's very straightforward how Solaris expresses critical theory, specifically like, uh, you know, dialectical thoughts about epistemology. And, you know, the characters in Solaris are, I think, explicitly like Soviet. They're, you know, they're, they're future Soviets. It's, uh, it's a Marxist novel written in the Soviet bloc. That that is true. Uh, so... You know, I think it's kind of incredible that he doesn't at any point call the novel Stalinist. Because this is another one of those places where he's really a trot, which is that all is the Soviet Union as a whole is throughout its history. Stalinism, yeah, yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I simply don't like that <laughs> very much. <sighs> Anyhow, yeah, no. Look, he then goes on to say that the like the seminal anarchist science fiction novel, possibly of all time, The Dispossessed, is best understood through Trotsky. Yeah. So, like... He uh, does, in fairness, also analyze its, like, relationship to great anarchist thinkers. Yeah, yeah. No, no, he's... Again, he loves to uh, allude to or directly involve various thinkers within the tradition he is identifying as dialectical and critical. It's just that he does ultimately have some that he thinks are more dialectical than others. And honestly, this is... You know, maybe you've picked up my, like, mild skepticism about this category, or, like, the, the way in which I'll say things like the tradition he's choosing to call dialectical. It's because I don't like the idea that you can take the anarchist thinkers and then Trotsky and say, well, Trotsky's more dialectical, therefore more insightful. Like, there's this one quality, and the more you have of it, the better your analysis is, and science fiction is more dialectical and therefore better than non-science fiction. It's also a little tautological, right? Where, yeah, like, exactly. The, the better thinkers are therefore more dialectical. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, the tradition is dialectical thought, and the more dialectical it is, the better. And I just don't like that way of approaching theories and hermeneutics and ways of thinking about things. Because, again, it leads to, I like this thinker, therefore I'm going to have to justify why they are maximizing the quality I believe must be maximized. It's, um, you know, again, this is my complaint about some ways of talking about materialism, where someone wants to do a less economic materialist, physical materialist kind of stuff, and so has to bend materialism as a term around until it can justify the sort of pure ideological and intellectual critique they want to make. Sure. Yeah. Because that's the value that must be maximized. Now, I do have to say, Solaris is dialectical. Oh, yeah, no, The no. Dispossessed. It, the Dispossessed is literally about... Yeah, like, two planets, two... <laughs> and you go from one to the other, and then you go back, and yes, he made the argument very well. Not, <laughs> And then the two of them, by Joanna Russ, is about two of them, and there's like a bunch of different pairs, and then uh, the only one that I would say is arguably not dialectical in the sense of there's two things. That's what it's dialectical, right? When there's two things. I'm killing the mic. Um, but is, uh, I mean, okay, Man in the High Castle is really in, is actually interesting in this regard because the dialectic is between, there are a few dialectics you can build within it, but one of them is between the timeline within Man in the High Castle and the real timeline, the one we're writing, Dick's writing from, 
and that dialectic gets real weird and intentionally breaks down when Dick's proposal for the in-universe alternate history novel depicts a timeline separate from our own as well, a third timeline where the Allies win World War II rather than the Axis, rather than a return to our first timeline, which I don't think Dick is particularly dialectical when he's really interested in Taoism, because Taoism is explicitly non-dualist, but we'll get to that. Um, but the, um, no, you're right that it is dialectical, there's a very straightforward dialectic between things, and then also, yes, the dispossessed is dialectical, there's two things. Okay, it's not just that there's two things. <laughs> I there's know, a, no, Literally, it's... there's like a synthesis in the fucking novel. I mean, Yes, come on. yes, he goes, the, the protagonist of, uh, of the dispossessed goes from the anarchist moon of Anaris to the capitalist and Stalinist, as he would put it, uh, planet of Oros, and then eventually returns, having learned important things and developed his relationship to the two. His personal development is also folded into this. It all, it's a, it's a dialectical buildings roman. You happy? I'm, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, good. I'm glad you're happy. You're a good friend of mine. Um, um, but no, and the, and the other one is, the last one, um, Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand is arguably not dialectical because there's too many things because part of its point is the endless proliferation of difference um you know like intensely uh, i'm just gonna say postmodernist and try and move on before anyone asks uh way like yeah star stars in my pocket like grains of sand is a really interesting piece of theory fiction like that's that's simply a thing going on there yeah yeah i think that's true uh but yeah, so we, we're we on The Dispossessed, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that I actually feel the need to go through and read each of these Don't you want to hear how Trotsky explains The Dispossessed? People can go read the book if they want to know that. Yeah, um, yeah, you get some free Trotsky info. I mean... <laughs> FreeTrotskyInfo.com You can get free Trotsky info on certain street corners when certain people are there handing out pamphlets. Um, or at almost any protest. That's true. Um, uh, but no, I think that the discussion of, um, the dispossessed is interesting. It is interesting, especially to read it in the context of Delaney's reading of the dispossessed, because, you know, these are a bunch of critical theorists and they're all reading each other's work. Um, because, uh, Friedman is definitely taking a different tack and focusing on different aspects than Delaney did in his, I mean, his, his poison pen essay on the dispossessed, like it is an absolute takedown of that novel. What is that called? Like, To Read the Dispossessed? Yes, to On read Reading the Dispossessed? One of those two. Either On Reading the Dispossessed or To Read the Dispossessed. And it starts at the level of this language is not science fictionally representing an, an anarchist society correctly and goes on from there. Um, it's taking shots from minute one. But uh, I think it's in um, Starboard Wine, actually. Uh, I'm looking it up. Or maybe it's in the Jewel Hinge Jaw? I'm looking it up. Okay. Yes, to read The Dispossessed is in the Jewel Hinge Jaw, not Starboard Wine. My bad. I appreciate you looking it up. I love looking things up. Uh, but the, um... 
the dispossessed the discussion of the dispossessed also discusses utopia obviously since it's subtitled an ambiguous utopia um and makes some really interesting points about the ways in which it deals with the utopian form like the the form of moore's utopia or the anti-utopias of 1984 and similar things where instead of an everyman that is to say a person who's more or less like the person from the given world um you know, to some extent, Winston from 1984, but definitely Hithloday, the traveler in Moore's Utopia, who goes to the island of Utopia and goes, wow, this is really different from England, um, isn't present in The Dispossessed because the everyman is in fact a representative of and in his person encapsulates the fully anarchistic, anti-propertarian uh, society of Anaris. Yeah, yeah. The, That's cool. Yeah, no, it's it's true. The um, it 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 estranges, uh, you know, existing property capitalist, relationships. Yeah, property relationships, existing capitalist society through a an already estranged point of view. Yeah, it's and the the real trick, the thing that I think he 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 outlines as a dialectical trick and a really clever one is. You want to see Shevek, the narrator, as an everyman by the fact that he is going to an alien world and encountering it because that's such a strong genre code of, you know, he is our Day. We are expecting him to be our relatively transparent narrator that we understand this strange new world through. Uh, and, you know, um, I think he cutely references Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land, we realize how little Shevek is like us and are kind of shamed by it because Shevek is a, like, full citizen of an anarchist society in a way that we are obviously not, even if we are anarchists. Um, and so that, uh, and so it causes us to see the world he interacts with in the same way that Gulliver, on returning from the Isle of the Whinniams in uh, Gulliver's Travels, sees all of English society as yahoos, as, like, fundamentally awful and barbaric because he has seen utopia or you know a better kind of person um in the same way while anaris is definitely not perfect very very much gets uh gets into criticisms of anaris and the way in which its practical anarchism functions um that criticism only serves to further highlight criticisms of the given world and of the parts of the setting of uras that are similar to the given world Actually, um, something he goes into great detail about is the idea that each of these criticisms is itself self-critical. The, um, the anarchism of Le Guin and the Dispossessed goes on to criticize, through the novelistic form, the anarchism of the Dispossessed. Like, to talk about its failings and what is, what is not being lived up to and what could be latent in the code of anarchism of Anaris and what might need to change. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that sort of, I mean, that kind of encapsulates the argument about, uh, criticality, right? That it is always self-critical as well as, uh, externally critical in order to be truly critical, a word which is rapidly losing meaning in my mouth. <laughs> so yeah, anything else to say about The Dispossessed? Um, not me. I mean, um, as I said, I do think the way he brings in Lacan is good but I don't yeah. I, I don't feel super competent to like comment on it I just oh, think yeah, it's I'm, a good I'm no Lacanian um, 
I don't know. Yeah. Good, yeah. good, uh, idea. Sure. Jeez. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but yeah, no, and these, these readings are really quite interesting. Reading them as critical theory does produce really interesting readings. Um, you know, he'd insist that this is not necessary to prove his point, and this isn't evidence, this is an excursus, but it serves as very good evidence, in my opinion. He also briefly mentions The Lathe of Heaven as uh, one of her best novels, though unfortunately neglected. And all I can say is, good call, buddy. It's it's a lot less neglected now. I've seen it referenced in popular culture and like on Twitter way more often than even The Dispossessed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would happily move on. To the two of them? Yeah, I... Yep, yep. Man, huh. <laughs> this doesn't i had not read this one before um so all i know about it is is from this book but from this book you don't recommend it it doesn't sound like a very good book no it's it sounds quite racist uh, okay so to very briefly gloss the two of them which is probably of these books the least likely for a listener to this podcast to have read do you think that's right yeah i think that's true yeah Briefly, it is the story of a pair of trans-temp, which are time and space traveling agents of a sort of uh, vaguely benevolent galactic liberal social order, um, traveling to a planet that has been recently, as in three generations ago, constructed on the order of conservative Arab culture. As the book understands it. As the book understands it, but very explicitly an artificially constructed one. Like, I don't think Joanna Russ thinks The Thousand One Arabian Nights is in fact an accurate depiction of historical society. And that's no. explicitly the text that would, one of the texts that was used as the basis for the constructed society on heavy sigh, Kaaba. Yeah, like, that's why it's things like that where I'm like, you don't get to wave away the idea that the people who made this society were racist. Does, does that make sense? The Orientalism being used may be internal to the text, but it is also just reproducing it. Yeah, and it, the thing that frustrates me so much about this is that it really seems to me like Russ could have made her points with like a, a, a fictional society that was based on like Arthuriana. Yes, so two further explain the plot yes, of the novel. sorry, go on. These two agents, an older agent who is a man, whose name is, what is it? Not Tim, it's... Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's also not Clint, but I feel like that would also fit. <laughs> Bob? Uh, shoot, it's Irene and the other guy. I, I'm glad that I'm... Ernst. Ernst, that's it. Ernst and Irene. And uh, Irene was someone that Ernst picked up from... Uh, stultifying 1950s American society by his time travel and brought her on as a, an agent of trans temp. She's the cool badass who wins fights and he's the like uh, calm handler. They are a romantic pair and they are going to deep sigh Kaba to basically um, benevolently abduct a young girl who would like to become a poet, which is fully banned by Cobbin Society for women and is considered basically a, uh, a mental illness if they would like to do it. Um, and so uh, they're basically slightly interfering in Cobbin Society in this way. Uh, Cobbin Society is caricaturishly sexist, obviously, 
But the point of the book is that as Irene decides that she is going to abduct this girl and for her own good and get her away from there, which, what's her name? Zubedaya? Uh Zubeda. Zubeda. Or, or, you know, that's how I'm pronouncing it. I, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's a real name that this is... The, Modifying? Yeah, and I don't know that real... I don't yes. know how to pronounce that real name, but Zubeda Anyways. is what I would guess. Uh, Zubeda is this, like, very precocious young girl who's obviously, you know, uh, not going to be able to live up to her potential in this sexist society, so Irene wants to take her away. Ernst starts thinking that, like, okay, this is interfering more than trans temp is actually allowed, this isn't a great idea. Ultimately, the point is for Irene to begin realizing that Ernst has also been enacting a kind of patriarchal control over her. While it is within a liberal society, he is still her superior officer and also partner who effectively exercises a lot of influence control over her life and doesn't take her concerns here particularly seriously to the point where he begins to imply that she's mentally unwell and is clearly having some kind of crisis and that's why she's acting irrationally. And then ultimately she kills Ernst and flees with uh, Zubeda to the American Southwest, where they were now, she is suddenly stranded as effectively a 30-year-old divorcee uh, with no family or connections and a dependent child. And the novel ends with a sort of uh, poetic or dream sequence about kind of the impossibility of this situation and the desire to create some kind of uh, female solidarity, at least as read by Friedman. Um, and there's a whole section about uh, Orientalism in Friedman's reading where he brings in Said to talk about like the way in which uh, the uh, the Arab world and uh, Middle Eastern culture in general has the and you know quote unquote Oriental in like the classical sense of of uh, South Asia and the Middle East uh, is used for a symbol of, like, everything bad. It's a completely flexible symbol for the Western imagination of uh, both uh, low cunning and stupidity, of cruelty, um, you know, massive sexism that justifies the slight liberal patriarchy of the West, all those sorts of things. And that is clearly what it is doing in the novel. The question is how, reflex how self-reflexively it's doing it and whether it could maybe have done it differently. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... I get that what's going on here on some level is that uh, Irene and Ernst have a an Orientalist, a liberal Orientalist ideology that they yes. apply to this other society. Yes. But and then, like, the society is just, just as evil the as they think it is. So Yes, and it's... Oh, it is a... The idea of producing an Orientalist society that, you know... It is certainly the case that there have been many historical patriarchies. And, like, you can—the idea of wanting to show how European uh, patriarchy, liberal patriarchy, has used other forms of patriarchy as a justification for its continued existence and for its benevolence— when in fact it is using in a more subtle way the exact same methods of control as these other societies— in theory, I don't think this is a fundamentally, like, awful approach to a novel, but I do agree that the combination of we're going to use Orientalism to construct this, and it's going to be a science fictional hyper-Orientalist society, rather than even just having the guts to just use an actual, carefully researched historical patriarchy of some kind, it's not great. 
Yeah, yeah. I just also like having read Russ's critical writing. I just, Russ is not that thoughtful about race, unfortunately. Um, So I think he's like imputing a level of depth on this subject to her that I think is not Do you think that this is more, this is what, you know, hypothetical 13th, you know, 14th century Arab patriarchy was like, and the point is just to contrast that historical thing which is reviled rightly with something that is now not sufficiently reviled. Yeah, like, like that's that's a proposal. I don't mean to say that that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read this novel. I should read it if I really want to like have a deep critique of it. Um, but I don't know. Um, but I will. It, it is it is using um, Orientalism and potentially a critique of Orientalism as a tool to illuminate the problems of liberal liberal white feminism more so than anything else. And I think that's yeah. still. I think that is itself still a. A white feminist thing to do you know yeah no i i can fully agree that this is a it's a it's a literally 60s 70s feminist uh construction yeah and i'm certainly not saying that i think someone should go ahead and do it now or that i think that this is ne- like you know i'm not saying i excuse racism but i draw the line at you know <laughs> that i'm not doing that particular thing um I just think that this is, a, it is an interesting reading of the book that Friedman engages in, even if on some level I leave it just going, you could have just chosen the female man. Like, that's the one everyone knows. You did the one everyone knows for the dispossessed. <laughs> you did the one everyone knows for Solaris. Why'd you have to get clever with this one? Yeah, yeah. And the female man does do a similar gesture of, like, using a fictional hyper patriarchal society yeah, yeah. to illustrate the things that are wrong with our like actual society yeah you know? no it, it uses the anti-utopian like the gender anti-utopia to do the thing yeah 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 no um and in fact we talked a bunch about russ's own writings about gender utopia and gender anti-utopia yeah yeah um, i also by the way people, in the russ episode in the russ episode i also talked about uh the female man itself on an episode of anomalous readings um which is a fantastic podcast um science on, fictional podcast yeah surely. it's a fantastic podcast about science fiction no no it's not fantastical it's science fictional eh, oh eh, i'm being annoying Yes, you really are. Um, anyway, uh, just want to give that little plug for Anomalous Readings because it's a great show and um, I'm really proud of the Female Man episode. So Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, we got two more excursies, excursi, to uh, touch on. Um, one of which is the Philip K. Dick one and to some extent my perspective on it is just that it is the Philip K. Dick one. It is about expressing how important Philip K. Dick is and uh, that Philip K. Dick is really interestingly dialectical, which is a thing that Friedman really wants to emphasize because, again, Dick is his favorite uh, author. I mean, do you think that's really all it boils down to here? No, no, I think there is an individual analysis here, but I think that the opening of it is basically, look, Philip K. Dick doesn't have the one everybody knows in the way that the dispossessed exists. So I have to choose one, and I'm going to make an argument for this one. It's an interesting argument for why Man in the High Castle is interesting for his point. And actually, I think that's where I would find the most interesting analysis of Man in the High Castle. Um, Though, I guess we should briefly mention that there's also a bunch of Orientalism there, and he doesn't feel the need to cite Saeed. Yeah, no, the... 
that he he really swallows whole the uh, ideas in the Man in the High Castle about like the ideological differences between Eastern and Western society. Yes, or at the very least that the ones that um, what's his face that Dick is proposing in Dick's usage of certain ideas from Taoism in a very odd form as. Uh, at the very least representing a, a good intercession in uh, Western ideology. And therefore, I mean, I think on some level he's basically arguing this is good and dialectical and critical, so we should just swallow it, even if it's maybe not super accurate. Because he does, like, mention the idea that this is Dick's version of an understanding of Eastern philosophy. But it also just sort of swallows that whole. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Also, uh, kind of deeply bothersome to me because at no point does he recognize that the specific philosophical idea that uh, Dick is engaging with there, which is called Wu um, in the novel, is in fact, I think pretty explicitly, because they both involve the I Ching, Taoist uh, ideas like Wu Wei, which Le Guin explicitly invokes in her own writing, especially in The Lathe of Heaven, which gets this like brief reference. And I was just waiting for some kind of connection or recognition that this particular body of authors also was interested in that. And that this was, you know, he calls it like proto-hippie in the case of Dick. And it's like, yeah, and then we have just the actual hippie version with Le Guin. Are you going to mention it? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, some this is nitpicking. This is nitpicking. But bothered me. Um, but no, I think the thing that's most interesting in his reading of Man in the High Castle is... First of all, the idea that it's not obviously science fictional. There's no advanced technology. There's no um, futurology. There's no, um, like, there's none of the, there's no space travel. That's a big thing he mentions um, because all of his other ones do have space travel or time travel. There's none of that in Man in the High Castle. It describes a relatively mundane uh, set of experiences in a world in which uh, the Axis won World War II. Yeah, yeah. And he sort of point, and he points out that it was not initially marketed as science fiction. Uh, it's not clear that it was initially read as science fiction. And it's only with its, with Dick's success as a science fiction author, as sort of the background, that it becomes read as science fiction and gets thought of that way. And so he argues that what's actually going on here is that it's very science fictional in its nature, which is to say it's very critical theory aligned in particular ways, but not, um, it doesn't have the markers or genre-like signs of science fiction that people are used to. And he uses it to argue that this is proof that science fiction exists, which doesn't have those markers, and therefore the important part is the criticality. Um, And in fact, he quotes a section from uh, The Man in the High Castle where someone argues that the in-universe novel The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which is an alternate history novel where the Allies won World War II, is science fiction despite the fact that it doesn't have spaceships and space travel in the future. It's an interesting little intersection, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that, like, The Man in the High Castle, I definitely think is, um, like... Is has a critical approach to history, right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, you can see a criticality and self-criticality in the production within the novel of the novel's counterpart. 
Yeah, yeah. I feel like Dick's metafictionality is where I would really be interested in his critical thought, personally. But I like metafiction. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's fair. I... <sighs> Sorry, I'm just remembering that bit where he's like, yes, the great post-nuclear novels that we can attach Samuel Beckett's Endgame to. We can also talk about Canticle for Leibowitz or other science fiction things. Or, of course, the best post-nuclear novel, Dick's Dr. Blood Bunny. I just think the title's really funny, cause, and it's also, I've never had that one recommended to me. I've seen it occasionally in print. It, I don't think it's considered this, like, you know, masterpiece of Philip K. Dick, but Friedman is really clear that it's one of the best Philip K. Dicks. Mm -hmm. uh, first person I've ever seen to really strongly take that position. I think it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, and I guess the last excursus is uh, Stars in My Pocket Like Rains of Sand by Samuel R. Delaney. I think you actually swapped the last two, but... I, I mean the last one that we haven't gotten to. Oh, yes, yes. No, we no, no. flowed into Man in the High Castle efficiently. No, 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 yeah, absolutely. Um, now we've lost all that efficiency to this conversation. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um... Stars in my pocket like grains of sand. I don't even know that we can begin to describe the plot of this novel. Yeah. Have you read Stars? No. Oh, I recommend it. <laughs> I um, know. I, I, I want to read it. I I think it's clear that I would enjoy it. Yeah, um, it's wild. Um, the, the introduction and the way it leads into the main novel is one of my favorite things Delaney has ever done with playing around with formal stuff in a way that isn't even touched on in this analysis by Friedman. Similarly, one of the, like, bizarre revelations of the end of the novel, which I feel fine spoiling because it's not a novel that where the, the plot developments are as important as the texture of things. It's, um, as he points out, it's a very postmodernist or modernist novel. Um... There's this revelation that our narrator for much of the story has been intentionally not talking about some of the things he notices the most constantly. Um, he's named Mark, by the way. Yeah, um, I know. Also, I'm calling him him, which in the dial the structure of the novel implies I want to have sex with him. There's complicated linguistic things going on here, but I figured it would just be easier because there's a very clear set of reference to... Uh, male homosexuality in Mark's relationship with the other main character, which is very explicit because the other main character comes from a society that is has gender and linguistic norms much more similar to present-day America and sees them in these terms and they don't find a problem with that because it's, oh god, talking about this novel gives me a headache. Um, <laughs> anyways, there's a moment at the end of the novel where Mark, our narrator, says, and by the way, Every time I have seen a person and described them to you in this narrative, I have been censoring myself because the first thing I look at on anyone I might even potentially be sexually interested in is whether they chew their nails because I have a massive, massive fetish for that. That is like, that erotics defines my relationship to the world in a loving and positive way and shapes how I see everyone I ever see. And that was that would be so different from how you see things that I had to censor myself in order to communicate. But I'm telling you about this now so you can backfill it into the entire novel. First of all, 
apparently that is a thing Delaney is actually into, but secondly, I think it really communicates the kind of things this novel is going for in the sheer diversity of human experience and diversity of cultural norms and the sheer incomprehensible flurry of these that you get across the novel, where its fundamental statement is, you cannot know a world. You can't even know an entire country. People are too different. There is too much going on. And to imagine you can know a space operatic 6,000 planets in elaborate social and political interaction is total folly. A great quotation from the novel that gets quoted yes. in this book um, is that uh, it, Mark speaking, During my first three years as an ID, I thought my job was not to be surprised at the universe's human variety. Later, I realized that it was not to be surprised that nonstop surprises would henceforth be my life. Yeah, and there's a... This is theory fiction. Like, this novel is laying out a... You might say a criticism of space opera and of science fiction. You might say a criticism of ways of thinking about the future and about human totality. You might even say that it is dialectically critical of dialectical thought for imagining it can capture the totality, which is something Friedman never mentions. I just want to point that out. Mm -hmm. um, but the novel as a whole is just this wild phantasmagory of these, of social norms and uh, sexual norms and uh, political norms and personal experiences, all of which are wildly estranged. Um, again, I think that the the passage from the uh, introduction to the main novel is just one of the coolest things uh, Delaney has ever done formally um, that I've read. Um, so yeah, no, it's, again, it's theory fiction. It, the it practically theorizes itself. Uh, Friedman's just giving us a short walking tour. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he'd disagree either. Um... You know, then talks a bunch about how this uh, expresses Derrida and Saussure, and the thing is... We and, and Adorno. And Adorno and others. Um, but Saussure is the one that I really wanted to reference because Delaney explicitly references Saussure in uh, about 5,750 words in a footnote in one of his only, like, references to other scholars. He briefly references Saussure there. Um, and I think that's important because, again, this is one of those places where it's like... I think what Friedman has picked up is that there was a certain kind of science fictional writing community that were writing uh, both science fiction and theory fiction in the same work at the same time. Because if you're seeing Saussurean like, theoretical structures in Delaney, it's because he put them there on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Not that I think... Um... I mean, okay, so then that does lead me to another, like, big question about yeah, the novel, yeah. which I think should maybe be where we wind about up. About the book? Uh, about the book, wow. You're doing it too now. Uh-huh. Um, so Our society I, is slowly losing the word book. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I think we can agree, all of us, you, me, and Carl, that, um, <laughs> that there can be science fiction novels that are, like, self-conscious theory fiction, where the author just set out to write some theory in the form of a novel. Yeah. Um... Do you think that there is or can be something theoretical about a novel where the author is, let's say, critical but not theoretical? I mean, do you think that's a thing? Or maybe, let's say, critical but not academic, at least. 
I I do think that's a thing. I think you can. There are novels that theorize themselves that aren't written by theorists. That where the, you know a novelist had some idea about how this all fits together and had a critical idea. But, but but what about the idea of something where there is they're just producing a novel for their own creative reasons and it produces theory. Yeah, or at least that that we as readers can find some kind of theoretical insight. No, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I just and I think you might even argue that science fiction is a little more prone to it. I just don't think that it's a necessary result of science fiction. And I think equally importantly from my perspective, I don't think it's necessarily going to be theory we agree with. Like yes, I think yes. that part of the Part of the vision of dialectical critical theory, part of its, like, fundamental uh, raison d'etre, its fundamental, like, drive, is the idea that because it is criticizing itself, because of how it is constructed, it will always move forward. That, to some extent, if you're doing it right, you are taking part in the world knowing itself in a particular direction that leads towards human liberation. And... My personal, perhaps slightly pessimistic perspective is that I think it's a lot more contingent than that, and if it goes in a direction, it is because people who have been working at critical theory have generally agreed it's a direction worth going in, and have bent themselves in that direction. That human intentionality is a huge part of that directionality. And I don't think science fiction as a genre is defined by a single intentionality so much as by a constant proliferation of contingencies and weird ideas and individuals like Philip K. Dick who are, you know, uh, bringing their their, uh, bizarre ideas to science fiction. And to some extent, I think that that is a place where there is a difference between theory and art. And I think that while science fiction may draw near in its capacities for theory fiction, I just don't believe that science fiction inherently drives towards that end. And I think that if you take your winnowing tool to science fiction and say, the more science fictional is the stuff that's more oriented towards that, you know, towards Bloch's utopia, as I understand it, towards that distant, you know, red dawn on the horizon, that new sun. Um, If only science fiction that points that way counts... Um, and you're not doing sort of the blocky and all-human activity points that way in some way, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of good science fiction. You're going to have to get rid of a lot of science fiction that shaped the genre, that produces interesting insights that don't fit into this narrative. You're going to have to winnow it down to just the new wave. Mm. Or maybe not just the new wave, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I think I hear what you're saying. I think there is something that's inherently critical about cognitive estrangement. Yeah. And not just inherently critical in the sense of, like, comments on itself, but, like, critical in the sense that Friedman means it as in liberatory. But I also think that the element of cognitive estrangement is, like, at different intensity in different works, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm willing to say that cognitive estrangement is fundamental to science fiction and is, like, the science fictional element. And I do agree that you can argue that you know, the Star Wars model of science fantasy is less cognitively estranging and thus less, in a certain deep sense, science fictional than Blade Runner, just to use a film-to-film comparison. I think Blade Runner is very effectively cognitively estranging. But I guess what I think is that I don't think cognitive estrangement needs to direct you towards the kind of human liberation I would like. Yeah, I guess what I think is that like 
when critical thought is sound, right? Like, Mm -hmm. when it's, like... Fully self-consistent. Yeah, exactly. Then, Then it, let's say, has a liberatory tendency, because I think if you understand the world correctly, then you will, like, understand the problems with it basically yeah i mean Um, i i'm very sympathetic to that but i think my perspective is i think that that idea that human liberation is a human construction we are creating an idea of a world we would like to have that hopefully is better suited to humanity and to human experience but i don't think utopia is i guess i'm gonna say i'm not quite on board with block or at least in the in the way that block intends it where it's like a metaphysical reality I don't know that that utopia is inherent in the universe and we are, you know, sort of orienting compasses towards it. I think it is a thing we are attempting to build out of the universe. And I do think there is a human tendency towards it that I think is very real and perhaps will ultimately fully align towards a single goal. But I also think that it is perfectly possible for someone to have bad ideas about what that uh, future world would be that are no less authentically human ideas than the ones I agree with, even if I think the ones I agree with work better. Yeah, no, I don't think I was trying to suggest that, like, inaccurate or, like, incomplete analysis is not human. Well, Um, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think it's just incomplete and inaccurate because you're also going to fundamentally bring valuation to it. Someone can have a complete analysis and decide to do bad things. And again, my example here is Nick Land, who helpfully for me writes science fiction theory fiction and is a monster. Like, is yeah. a reaction, an arch reactionary who intentionally created a science fictionally inflected reactionary movement, neo-reaction, that continues to have negative effects in our society to this day. But I mean, would you say that that's... I guess the way that I think about Nick Land is that he, like, understood or... Uh, Like, I don't know if I would say he understands currently, right? But at some point understood the problems and then came up with just, like, not just evil, but, like, non-functional solutions. I mean, I think that that's true of his hyper-racist period, but I think the period where he was worshipping the machine capitalism as his terrifying Cthulhu god... I think that what made that compelling to a lot of leftist critical theorists and what makes it compelling as an artistic movement by, again, someone who I consider to be basically evil, was that he accurately saw a possible, like, a a critical line, uh, an accurate analysis of the shape of capital, and his response was, I'm going to worship it like a god instead of I'm going to fight it, and those, that decision about what you're going to value is fundamentally a decision a person can make. Mm. And And you're right, that is a decision of value, not of, like... I mean, well... I mean, no, but he fully understands that his bones were going to be used to, like, power the machine. Like, Mm. he did not imagine that he was going to get to have a nice life in it, but instead was having a sort of quasi-mystical, I'm going to get to be fuel for this version of the world. No, yeah, I guess, yeah. Hmm. Again, he's a really useful figure because he comes out of these critical things he comes out of being a marxist he's he knows this stuff and then he quit meth and a bunch of things happen like i'm not saying that i think that there's like a perfectly rational mind going into all of these decisions like some kind of supervillain. i'm just saying he's a very useful figure for why i don't think critique is autonomous and escapes the 
necessity of making a value judgment. Yeah, no, that is totally true. I, I, I think some of the things I was saying were backing into attempting to, um, backing into attempting to back out of uh, value judgments, um, <laughs> yeah, which mean, is not something be, I believe in. Like, I think Bloch's utopian telos, like the idea that there is an there is a principle of hope in humanity that leads us inevitably towards that homeland of utopia. I would love to believe that. And in fact, in some senses, I find it very compelling and believable. I simply think that we have to decide to pursue that utopia, that there is a decision to be made, not merely, you don't just have to fully coordinate your mind with the universe and go, yes, with full understanding, I know that I must, you know, bring about fully automated luxury gay space communism or whatever, to be reductive. That utopia is inherent to the universe and I merely pursue it. I have to decide that's the thing I want. I do think you're being a little unfair to Bloch, because I don't think he thinks utopia is inherent to the universe. I mean, no, I think to he thinks humanity. A, well, and, and, and he thinks a drive towards this. Like, yes, right? yeah, that, yeah. That, that doesn't Bloch mean is that... more. Bloch does not necessarily mean we will arrive there in a physical sense, but his idea of, like, the drive towards that homeland of the human spirit, which we will... At hopefully someday attain. I mean, Bloch is a Jewish mystic. He believes in the uh, the reparation of the world and in its eventual perfection. So he does, in fact, believe that there is a divine talos to the universe in what he that is expressed through the hope principle. So you keep using the word telos, and I really strongly suspect just because because critical theory is so hostile to that idea. I know. I would find it really hard to believe that you can just reduce when I Bloch use it, to that. I mean, okay, in Bloch's case, because he is a mystic in a lot of his things, I don't think he would have a problem with the idea of Talos. Like, mm. in Bloch's case, I think it is a perfect... As I understand Bloch, it is a perfectly friendly thing to say that he is teleological in a very grand sense, that he believes there is a teleology to the hum to human hope. I guess what I'll say is I'd be shocked if Friedman didn't oh, consider well, that an insult. Oh, yeah, no. I, when I use it about uh, critical theory as done by Friedman, it is, if not meant as an insult, it is meant to say that I think I see a teleological tendency in certain kinds of dialectical materialism, certain kinds of dialectical critical theory because it's so hard not to be teleological. I think in practical, in a practical sense, most of the time I am teleological about my political ends, the idea that this is the direction the universe should go, because it's very hard not to think that this is like, that you are pursuing a thing that exists in the world already and which the world is bent towards. Mm -hmm. It is much harder to imagine that you are trying to build something out of imperfect tools that will be perfect. Yeah, okay. I'm ready to stop there if you are. Sure. I We got oddly theological this time. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, science fiction is critical theory, so this turned into a critical theory podcast for about two hours. Yeah, yeah. God, if anyone's still listening, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure we have our devoted, like, handful of listeners. Um. <laughs> if you're hearing this, you're part of the handful. We love you personally. We are parasocially friends. <laughs> Most likely we know each other in real life, to I be mean, honest. there's a decent chance, but if we don't, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Look, I I also want this to be for people who haven't personally met us and learned how weird we yeah, are. Yeah, no, I, I, yes, I was being self-deprecating. Um, okay, uh, 
Ben, do you have anything you want to plug or any you want to tell people where to find you on the internet? Oh, I mean, I'm still on uh, at Silkenstone on Twitter and Blue Sky, though I've mostly still been using the Hellish Bird app. Um, and also, I have Silkenstone on Itch, where I have a game now, yay! Um, and also, I am trying, and hopefully it won't be like six months late, like it was when we first mentioned this, uh, to work on a first case file for Detector Die, so that there'll be a pre-written uh, module to go through. It's pretty inspired by Disco Elysium and some other things. Yeah. Um, You've played this case, actually, because it was one of my playtest cases. I have, yes. I, I playtested uh, this case file for Detector Die, Ben's uh, tabletop system, and it was fantastic. Thank you. Um, so whenever it comes out, I'm sure we will put Aww. the link in the description. <laughs> um, and uh, I am at Char Asnablunt on Twitter and Blue Sky. I'm at, or sorry, Char Asnablunt on Twitter and Tumblr. I'm Venn Diagram on Blue Sky you got and Venn co-host. Diagram. What? You yeah, got Venn Diagram. You were excited about. That I did time. get Venn Diagram on both Blue Sky and co-host. I love to be an early adopter. Um, uh. I don't love that actually. It, it says <laughs> it says bad things about me and my life and my priorities. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's uh. where you can find me. Um, I uh, let's see. Oh, I was recently on an episode of Coffee and Comic Books. Um, which is a great podcast. You should also totally go listen to that one. Um, it is on the uh, Export Audio Network. Um, I don't know if the episode that I was on was a Patreon episode or not, but regardless of whether it is only available on Patreon, you should listen to it on their Patreon, which is, um, you can find it on exportaud.io. Um, we talked about the excellent science fiction comics uh, series Finder, um, specifically the story Sin Eater. Do you think that Finder is expressive of critical theory? Yes. It's theory fiction? It's not theory fiction, but I think that it has, it contains critical thought. Okay. I don't think that, it, it is, it is interested in expressing critical ideas about society through an estranged version of our own. Cool, cool. So, definitely Savinian science fiction. Yes. Yes, Finder is totally that. Um, okay, so yeah, that's me. That's you. Anything else we want to say right here at the end? Uh, our sign-off? Yeah. Stay cognitively estranged, everybody. Bye.